3: Cool fact: a crocodile can’t stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop Podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward/events.
2: Thank you all for coming. Um, Welcome to the London Review Bookshop in person and out in the world. Um, Thank you for joining us uh, wherever you're joining us from. I am delighted to welcome Rebecca May Johnson to talk about Small Fires, published by Pushkin Press. I think you're all, all as excited about this book as I was. It's not typical that I get to speak to the author while they're still writing the book and say, can we do an event, please, when it eventually comes out? Um, And I was delighted that Rebecca said yeah, Um, so thank you very much. Rebecca's going to be in conversation with Jonathan Nunn, editor and founder of Vittles. Um, And you're all there now as well, working together? Yeah. Our guests are going to talk for about 40 to 45 minutes. Uh, There'll be time for questions afterwards. If you want to send questions from out in the world to me, um, Sam will send them to me and I'll ask them on your behalf as well. But we'll go around the room, so give me a little wink, give me a nod, and we'll get around as many of you as possible. Um, thank you uh, for listening to me, and let's hand over to our guests and wish them a very warm welcome, and a thank you. Thank you so much for being thank here you. to us.
0: Thank you. Thank you for all for coming to what has been described as the literary event of the year, <laughs> <laughs> mainly by me, um, and also, weirdly, the sartorial event of the year. Um, I think... It's almost like we were just saying beforehand, it's almost like a wedding. We've got people dressed up like Rebecca's book. We've got people coming in from all over, from Europe, friends and family, yeah. telegram from Nigella. I don't think so. <laughs> But yeah, I want to thank the LRB for putting this on as well. Um, I think they practically saved us during lockdown. It was constantly in the background during the pandemic, and it's quite surreal to be up here.
1: Yeah, it's uh, a total dream. All of yeah. my favourite writers have spoken here, so. so thanks a lot for having us.
0: Yeah, Thank you for supplying these Britney masks. There's yeah. Britney mics as well. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you to Rebecca, actually. I think I first read this little marvel of a book, I mean, it must have been five months ago when first got proofs, and. I think I read it once, and it immediately had this transformative effect on my writing. I think I couldn't write the same way about food again after I had read it. And I I think Rebecca says that she wants to blow up the kitchen. And I think what you're going to see is this very slow detonation after this gets released of people reading this book and changing the way that they write and think about food. And I can't wait to see sort of the effect it has.
1: Oh, thanks
0: Um, So, yeah, thank you very much for writing this. Oh, (laughs) God. I think we're going to ease into the event with a small reading first, and we'll probably intersperse some readings throughout the the talk.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's not actually out yet, so I thought I'd just start with a a reading, do a couple of readings, and then we'll chat in between. So the first bit I'm going to read is from the chapter called Hot Red Epic, which is really the story of cooking the same recipe a thousand times over a 10-year period and trying to think about the impact that recipe's had on my life, the way that I see the world, and how I've engaged with other people, my relationships. And, yeah, as a sort of bearer of life, in a way. So I'll just read some. Yeah. Okay. When I think about performing the recipe, I think about the movements of subatomic particles, or the orbits of moons and planets. There is a physics to it. The recipe introduces me to principles of touch, knife work, heat and time. The temporality of white becoming gold in oil. I must be careful about how I move my hands. The interventions they make can be significant. They are always in relation. In the study of electrons, nothing is ignored because everything can have an effect, even looking. The proverb, a watched pot never boils, was taken up by physicists trying to describe the behavior of quantum particles. Watched pot behavior is another term for the Zeno effect in quantum physics, whereby frequent measurement inhibits the process being observed from actually taking place. Sometimes my anxiety or impatience causes me to take the pan off the heat too soon. Cooking often hovers at the fringes of serious thought. I see it used as a metaphor in philosophical texts, invoked in introductory paragraphs deployed to convey the complexity of processes that are not cooking. But I find I need to draw on all available resources to articulate the complexity of the recipe. After 10 years or more of experimentation, I have not exhausted its possibilities. I have not found a limit for what the recipe can teach me about being in the world. The recipe is a method of navigation, a method for seeing or seeking what is beyond me. The recipe makes a space in my life where time does not pass, but accumulates as a hot red sea full of feeling, good and bad. The month before I move to Berlin to study and work, I perform the recipe and my hair is even shorter and red, with a blue and blonde fringe. Blue quickly fades to grey. For the first performance of the recipe in Berlin, my hair is white blonde and I have painted the top half of my face pink. I am drunk, and I play Giorgio Moroder, whose music I've recently started listening to. I put my favourite apron over my clothes. It is checked green and orange, and is made from pliable cotton, and I pull it tight. In this apron, I orchestrate many large meals. I become a conductor of chopping and frying and drinking and dancing. For the third performance of the recipe in Berlin, my hair is still white blonde. I'm wearing blue lipstick with dark blue glitter over the top affixed with lip gloss and dramatic black eyebrows painted much higher than my own on my forehead, black eyeliner, a drawn-on beauty spot, and a blue leotard. The more artificial I look, the better it feels, being not essentially anything. At 3 a.m., I go to the club Berghain with my friends, and we queue in the snow and then dance to pounding techno until 11 a.m., which counts as an early bedtime for many attendees. When I'm not in nightclubs or cooking in the apartment, I wander the city alone, wearing large headphones. The headphones make a space for me that is insulated from social interactions. Most nights when I'm not out, I wake up at 4 or 5 a.m. in a panicked alcohol sweat and call the very patient person I am seeing long distance in the UK. Apart from my Norwegian flatmate with whom I spend most of my time, a philosophy graduate I recognize in a nightclub, the owner of a fashion store I work in, and a customer whom I befriend, the only people I speak to are those with few enough boundaries to make it past my headphones. The philosophy graduate picks the meat from a chicken I have cooked and talks about an ex-girlfriend and throbbing gristle and who he wants to fuck now. He's sure they'll be out this week. When we have drunk everything in the flat, we leave to be in the perfect and blessed light of Berlin nightclubs, where I dance until the makeup runs down my face. A tall and beautiful man called Vladimir is on the door of the club that becomes like home for a short, sweet while. Peaches sings Fuck the Pain away from a podium with her pubic hair spewing gloriously from her sequined leotard. Free packs of Gaulois cigarettes are handed out to everyone. A French man with a moustache called Charlie Lemindou is shaving heads for 15 euros in the basement. We exit at 4am to eat a kebab and then go back in to dance again, or perhaps onwards to Bergheim. Every dance floor is an ecstatic exploration of our desires, our bodies. The 200th time I make the recipe is a kind of madness. Cooking becomes a social support I lean on too heavily. A German teenager in my literature class at the university manages to strike up a conversation, declaring her admiration for my tight red jeans. Unprepared and taken aback, I give a freakish and exaggerated performance of social courtesy and promise to cook a meal for all her friends for her birthday at my apartment without asking my flatmates. She is local and lives with her parents and treats the occasion as a chance to go wild. I feel hysterical as I serve food to dozens of people I've never met, who flood the apartment, play music I don't like, and intrude on my flatmate's private space. I find out that I do not like the girl whose birthday I am hosting. (laughs) That I do not know her at all. We do not really speak again after that night. Even worse, I make a fatal substitution in the recipe not anticipating how differently the ingredient would behave. The thought of all these strangers eating the manic bad dish haunts me painfully. When the temperature is so low that the cold burns my face, I buy a bag of oranges from Lidl. I take one out. It is an orange against drinking and against the lost feeling I can't shake. I buy the webbed bag of fruit as a tonic, as a way of following advice that I have not received for years. It is a way of following my mother's advice, even if it has never been given. A dream of good advice, which I plan to absorb with each segment. I peel the orange, hopefully, like it will be a doctor, an oracle, a cure. But when I gaze, full of hope, into the wet orange flesh, it moves. The orange flesh moves, wriggles, and is alive, and I'm not hallucinating. The orange is full of maggot larvae, The oranges are the birthplace of decay whose life was throbbing evidence against mine, and I scream and throw it against the wall in the kitchen, and it splats and sprays orange juice and larvae all over, running into each other in drips down the wall. I have never been more shocked. I eat no more oranges that winter. (laughs) In London, I make the recipe, and my hair is short and bowl-cut, dyed deep burgundy red. Then I dye it black and shave an undercut too. When I cook, as when I walk around the city, I wear a long black blazer over buttoned-up shirts with black platform boots. My lipstick is bright orange or blue or black or purple, any color but red. However, while I love clothes and makeup, I'm beginning to use them like a carapace, a hard shell to protect myself from other people, from the vulnerability of intimacy. I set too much store by appearances and control mine too tightly. Cooking is the tool I use to draw close to other people, though closeness makes me anxious. Cooking is how I manage closeness. Sometimes it can go wrong, like the stranger's birthday party in Berlin. Cooking for someone is not always an appropriate response to meeting them, but sometimes it's okay. For the 240th performance, four years after I first make the recipe, I make it for you. Quote. At least there is that you, which is every beloved, which constitutes itself across difference and species and the whole of life. You is eros and caritas, all mixed up in a word. It is also the stranger who any of us might be. And in that, the only law is probably love. And that the violation of life anywhere is the violation of life everywhere. And in that, no one is free until everyone is. You is what everything in the world is staked on, including yourself. That's Amboya. You teach me about cooking for every other other. You teach me about that you. You are almost a stranger. We haven't known each other long, but I stake myself on cooking for you. You tell me that some ingredients disagree with you. There are certain things you cannot eat, but you can eat everything in the recipe. So I make it for you once, and you love it and then I make it for you a hundred times. Years later, you say you would like to eat the recipe as your last meal. (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) And that sometimes, when we are apart, you type... (coughs) Oh, shit, sorry. (laughs) I'm crying. (coughs) You type my first name and the title of the recipe into an internet search, which of course doesn't turn up anything useful. When I'm thinking about what to cook for you, I return to the recipe as a meditative practice, to the beginning of what I know you can eat. Your appetite changes the recipe over time. I ask what else you want. I change the recipe to make something that is new and also the same. For the 365th performance of the recipe, I add things that make it sweet and sour and spiced and serve it with lamb patties to evoke a meal we ate with our friends by a river several summers before. Now we are in the city, and it is not warm, but when we eat that evening, we are drunk by the river again. Here again, here again, here again, the recipe becomes an ensemble performance. That was Thank you, Rebecca. Sorry, Sorry for that, yeah. <clears throat>
0: I don't know how many of you have read Rebecca's book yet, but just to give you a bit of context to that passage, the book is centered around the recipe by Marcella Hazan for tomato sauce. And a, much of that chapter is about the repeated performance of that recipe, um, a 1,000 times, and over those a 1,000 times, Rebecca changes, your hair changes, your clothes change, your friends change, the city you're living in changes, the kitchens change. Yeah. How, did you, how did you come across, well, how did you start framing the recipe yeah. as a performance, and why did you do so?
1: Yeah, this chapter changed so much in its genesis. Um, I went through lots of different sort of stages in my own mind. Um, Kind of really early on when I panicked, I was like, I've got nothing to say about recipes. Um, there's nothing I could say. <laughs> and then a few years ago, I mean, I had various bits of writing about this recipe in various notes, and it kind of came up again and again in my own mind when I was thinking about cooking. And it's always been a sort of, when I first made it in 2006, it, it kind of established a sort of grammar for all cooking that followed for me. It was a sort of um, it transformed my engagement with the world, which is not me in a way, which the things that are not me, because it showed me the the depth of things. So in this case, ingredients and the, the way that the recipe operates is that the things are slowly transformed through time and the processes that you apply. And then I sort of developed a more inquisitive approach to ingredients. So this sort of underlying or underpinning grammar that that recipe taught me then became the basis for sort of, you could say, speech or engagement with food as a language, as a sort of mode of expression. But then in in early 2020, I gave a paper at a conference at the RCA about writing and performance. And I was proposing the recipe as a performance text because, you know, a question that I often think about and that I sort of talk about in the book quite a lot is, um, where is a recipe? You know, where does it exist? Because it, the, the text of a recipe is not its, neither its origin nor its terminus. It's a sort of annotation in between performances. And so I knew I was going to write... I, I, I wanted to write about that for this paper. So that was, I guess, 2019. I sort of began conceiving of it formally in that way. And then, um, actually, I was sitting in the in cafeteria in Norwich in John Lewis, and like, you know the top floor where it's just people eating huge pieces of cake at 11 in the morning, and it's sort of time, all sort of sense of time disappears. And I wrote, I wrote the paper, and I just thought, I started thinking, well, if I'm saying it's performance, I need to incorporate this sense of performance and embodiment into my account of it. So I then just started writing a list of all the times I had made the recipe from the first time I made it, and then it kind of grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. And then I was I was really excited to read it out. It really felt like something was happening when I was sort of going through all these performances, and then I suddenly started seeing that this recipe is a sort of bearer of life, a bearer of, me- of memoir, sort of collecting life into it, and sort of everything I'd ever known had sort of somehow become contained by this recipe. And then I sort of began to bring it, when I was writing, into dialogue uh, with the Odyssey, which I spent a grindingly long, stressful time doing a PhD about a contemporary German rewriting of the Odyssey, a wonderful poetic text by the writer Barbara Curler, who very sadly died last year, um, because she, does a, she wrote a contemporary rewriting of the Odyssey in which she centres Penelope. So Penelope is Odysseus's wife in the Odyssey, and weaving is her labour. And through close engagement with the practice of weaving, through, with its material reality, with what threads do, when you weave and unweave, because she unweaves at night what she weaves in the day so she doesn't have to marry someone she doesn't want to marry. She creates a new form of time. She creates through this iterative labor and through her understanding of it, which those who don't weave can't access, she conceives of a new form of of temporality, that the time that she creates through this unweaving at night keeps her safe, keeps her protected, and becomes a sort of, well, it's amazing. It's a sort of form of genius, really. And then I... I was thinking like, why am I not, I'm applying this sort of, I don't know, years of my life to thinking critically about Penelope's weaving labour and the sort of form of thought that this gives birth to and the sort of temporality that she creates through this. Like, why have I never applied this attention to cooking? Why have I not brought my critical mind into the kitchen? And I spent years trying to investigate the relationship between like, language and the body. Quite often when you're studying, it's like when life and all its exuberance passes into language, it's kind of experienced as a kind of loss. There's a kind of normativity. There's a sort of hollowing out almost, um, something I struggled with for a while to so sort of think about that. But then when I thought about the recipe text and cooking it a thousand times, it helped me understand how actually you could return life to language. Through this iterative practice, through if you cook the recipe a thousand times over a ten-year period, you're returning the body and life to language over and over again through that um, animation of the text through through living and performance. And also, um, and
0: also sort of bringing life to the recipe as well. Because I yeah. think lots of people, it seems to me like a really what you've done is a really amazing way of. Sort of dealing with people's ambivalence over the recipe as well, because pe- either ambivalence or like outright hatred of the recipe, because yeah. there are, there are people who sort of boast about like I never cook from recipes, like don't do that. There's a yeah mm.
1: it, yeah. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of anxiety and irritation and anger around the recipe that seems to come up. It comes up. You just, you know I watch a lot of TV cooking shows, and yeah, people often feel I think resistant to admitting to using recipes. It's almost something that people feel that they have to admit. And then the New York Times, uh, one of the New York Times editors wrote a no-recipe recipe book, which I write briefly about in the book, which is pictures of food with lists of ingredients and then instructions. Um, <laughs> but he, he doesn't give you any quantities. It just seems like really irritating. It's just a
0: bad recipe. <laughs>
1: and, and also it, it underestimates the reality of how people use recipes because people... The recipe text tries as it might, unless it 's some kind of extremely elaborate French patisserie, perhaps, doesn't have authority in the end. You take the recipe into your home, you engage with it you know, how much time you have, what you can act, what kind of ingredients you can access, wherever you are, what 's in the cupboard, whether you hate something that's on the list of ingredients, whether someone you 're cooking for, you know they hate something, whatever. So the text is not the recipe ultimately. it comes into a sort of different form through practice. And you know, I, I've had my own ambivalence towards recipe, and I felt this need to say, yeah, yeah, I cooked that recipe, but you know, in my own way or whatever. And this, the need to state one's own authorship, one's own authorial intervention in the cooking process, which I also understand. You know, there is, uh, I think it's important that it's not an either-or situation. It's not either you invent something or you're following a recipe blindly. It's a siren text, it's a, it's a collaboration. It's always a collaborative event when you cook something. It's always a participatory text. There's more than one voice speaking. We're always relying on the knowledge and, and labor of others before us and around us. But there's a sort of anxiety of authorship around it. And um,
0: There's a line, in, I, I'm going to mangle it but oh, It's okay. something like, the recipe allows for the refusal of it. As well. Yeah. It's all part of the recipe. I write about,
1: exactly. I write a lot about in the book about refusing recipe, but refusal is a way of expressing a desire to participate in its ongoing life and to participate in making the world, if if you can think of making a meal as, as, as part of making, of world making on some scale. And when I was thinking about this question of recipes, and I was looking for a fight, really. Um, when I was writing the book. And then I saw on a someone I think called Hannah Proctor, she's got um, a newsletter, yeah, Hannah Proctor. Well, then she's also got another name. Anyway, hannahproctor.com. She, ha- she has a newsletter about psychoanalysis. Anyway, she tweeted a screenshot of an extract from uh, the psychoanalyst D.W. Winnicott. Uh, much beloved of many contemporary writers, I don't know, famously Maggie Nelson, but, you know, many other people as well.
0: I think we know a Winnicott moment. moment.
1: Huh? A Winnicott moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, in some ways, I really like Winnicott. And so I write very positively about his writing about play in the book. I, I think, and I had to, when I was writing and I got stuck, I keep, kept having to remind myself to play, to, to keep playing when I got too sort of tangled in words. But he anyway he wrote this passage um, in this paper published in 1970. He's trying to theorize what it is to have a creative life, and he chooses recipes to shit on basically. And he constructs this binary between you can either cook following a recipe and you follow it you you are slavish and you comply and you get nothing from it. So it's a very kind of kind of I guess neo well colonial misogynistic discourse. So slavish compliance if you cook from a recipe. Or you can be the original one who cooks as if, cooks something as if never before, but in a sort of deep irony which i, I don 't know if he 's aware of, but one imagines he must have been, but i don 't know he chooses a sausage um, as the ingredient to write about as a psychoanalyst it's sort of it 's like, it's like the most phallic uh, food object you could ever hope to find, really. And um, he <laughs> and he chooses Mrs. Beaton, um, Mrs. Beaton's sausage recipe, and then so for me, like Mrs. Beaton, you know, in sort of the British psyche, is like the mother of all recipe writers. So you've got this amazing like Freudian triangle here, and um, he he wants to have um, an authentic, original, unmediated encounter with a sausage, um, and he doesn't want Mrs. Beaton interfering with that. Um, <laughs> And and he's, but anyway, but see, unlike his beautiful, meticulous writing on play, childhood, mothering, you know, m- many parents in the sort of later 20th century are deeply grateful for the concept of the good enough mother. You don't have to be perfect and do everything. You can just be good enough, you know, keep them alive. Uh, I'm not a parent, I don't know, but anyway. Um, so when he does that kind of work, he's painstaking in... Allowing his analytical subjects to sort of gradually arrive at the conclusions of the outcomes um, themselves before inserting his own analysis. Whereas with cooking, when he's using this to make his theory about what it is to live a creative life, he there is no cook, there's no, there's no case study, there's no anything of that kind. He just feels free to make his analysis with. And it becomes very clear that he hasn't cooked the recipe. Anyway, so I make myself his patient in the book, basically. And I find a Mrs. Beaton sausage recipe on the internet, and I cook it, and I annotate what happens.
0: It also leads to like one of the most delirious moments in the book, which is like this diagram here, <laughs> which, which says, like Mrs. Beaton, sausages, recipe text, pubes out on a podium. <laughs> Showroom selling Butt Magazine. It's great.
1: Oh, I was really <laughs> pleased to be able to rhyme Butt Magazine with Judith Butler, which is very, um, whatever, anyway. There, was, I, did, I did in a very cliched way, I worked in a shop called Temporary Showroom in, in Berlin. It was 2007. It was, it was another time. Anyway. Um,
0: do you, do you want to go into reading? Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm just going to read you my annotation of Cookie Mrs. Beaton's sausage recipe. It's slightly nuts. It's just directly transcribed from my diary when I did it. Um, but it was a really important moment in the book because I wrote the second half of the book by hand, and it was like reintroducing the body into the text. I got a bit tangled up in theory, and I was like, oh, "I'm just doing what Winnicott's doing." Okay. Um, yeah, I made Mrs. Beaton's so- sorry. I made Mrs. Beaton's recipe for frying sausages for it for the first time. I found the recipe on Google Books. It is a 19th century version. I am not sure which edition. I looked to the sausages to relieve me from a feeling of abstraction that arose from tying myself in knots, writing. It is like a mist descends. I felt distant from the world, bodies, things. I went especially to buy the sausages at a nearby butcher. I'm not a particular fan of the butcher. I have had strange experiences there in the past. (laughs) But one of their sausages is quite nice. I buy 12 sausages, six for today, six for another time. At home, I washed the pan I felt would be the best toast for the sausages. Mrs. Beaton does not specify, apart from, a frying pan. I chose a pan not too snug, as I did not want them to semi-steam, and not so large that they would scorch and lose their moisture. Cast iron. I put the radio on. It is 1980s day on the radio station when I turn it on. Lots to dance to. The soaring, desire, anguish-filled, male falsetto voice of the 1980s, and rap and pop with samples. I take the sausages out of the bag and separate them with a small knife. They are gorgeously fat, and I can see flecks of pepper and herbs. I, turn the, I try to prick them with a fork, as Mrs. Beeson instructs, but the tines are too blunt to penetrate the sc- casing, so I use the end of a small knife with a black handle from Ikea. I turn the oven on and put in two plates to warm. I do not want it all to become cold. I cut a one inch by 0.5 centimetre piece of butter, lightly salted, and put it in the pan and watch it melt. I am unsure whether to do this. Mrs. Beaton writes, quote, put them into a frying pan with a small piece of butter. Perhaps half following another recipe, I decided to melt the butter first. It was barely a decision. I added the sausages. It was a low medium heat, though Mrs. Beaton does not specify a heat. I set a timer for 12 minutes. Mrs. Beaton specifies 10 to 12 minutes. The music keeps interrupting my attention. Perhaps it is my return to things, flesh, the world. I can't stop dancing. Shaka Khan, I feel for you, comes on. And after a period of feeling out of my body, the winter, lockdown, fatigue, anxiety, like a surge of sap rising, I am electrified, full of desire and movement, dancing, dancing, dancing. I am horny, exuberant, hot. I make coffee, hot sausages and hot coffee and hot toast. I grind some beans with the hand grinder, dancing all the while. I fill the kettle with water and press the switch. I turn the sausages, seeing that they have bronzed, browned on the side that was in hot butter. As Mrs. Beaton instructs, I turn them a few more times, though I do not quite keep the pan moving as she instructs. It is my first time cooking the recipe. I am very excited. It is bringing me to life. I do not think I've noticed sausages bronzing, caramelizing in this way before. I pour hot water over ground coffee. I tighten my apron strings and feel, sorry, I tighten my apron to feel the strings tighter over my body as I dance, flying on some kind of libidinal high. I think of Winnicott's dry, sausageless account of following this recipe. I cannot have quite pricked the sausages enough with a knife. Several have split slightly, One is coming, perversely, out of its casing at one end. They did not explode, though, as they might have had I not pricked them. I thought of his account of cooking sausages without a recipe, as if for the first time. But she, he, could only cook the sausages at all, because other recipes were floating in the air, because an imagination of a recipe is present. When I cook this recipe, it is as if I approach sausages for the first time. I find my fat sausages need more time than Mrs. Beaton allows. There are parts that remain pink even after 12 minutes have elapsed. And I had turned them, as she said. I begin to feel concern about dryness or over and under cooking. While I finish them, I cook the toast and butter it and put it on the plates in the oven. Mrs. Beaton does not mention butter, but not using it seems too dry. Finally, I put two sausages on each plate with two more in the pan for seconds. On the table are French and English mustards, ketchup, and brown sauce. I only use the mustards. The sausages are exquisitely juicy. I love it. After we have eaten, The Cure, Pictures of You, is on the radio. While I write up, I am sending messages to D and A, and among other things, we discuss the dramatic imprecision of predicting when a baby will be born. One of them, A, was due over a week ago. Quote, "'It's just amazing how imprecise it actually is in terms of estimated due date "'and how very different each mother-baby pair is,' she said. "'Over lunch I say that I like that Mrs Beaton gives an average cost "'and a season for sausages, and a note about hot weather, "'and a historical footnote about Saxon swineherds. Wowee!' I'll just get more. "'After I cook the sausages, I am more in disagreement with Winnicott than before. His account of cooking from the recipe reduces the experience to a thin linguistic apparition. Cooking does not take place in the medium of language. In his haste to theorise, Winnicott mistakes the recipe text on the printed page for the act of cooking the recipe. Mrs. Beaton's recipe text is a series of steps with explanatory points, as if to cook were to progress from point A to B on a two-dimensional line. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah, I'm going to carry on. Then there's a recipe, which I won't read out. Mrs. Beaton's austere imperatives constrain the explosive potential wreckage of cooking, of bodies that cook. They offer support. The the minimalism of the recipe text is in a dialectical relationship with the total possible edible world and everything I might do with my body. Cooking takes place in at least three dimensions. An intense and whirling experience of time emerges as I cook, it's a wild ride. It is the beginning of spring after a winter trapped inside, and I'm in need of release. My experience of cooking Mrs. Beaton's sausages is that of time as change, not the clock time of minutes on a timer. But her recipe makes cooking the sausages navigable and not spiraling, formless chaos, despite my mood. The text assembles the elements, suggesting movements, and sets the essential boundaries through which form can emerge. And what form? There are no fizzing, grease-spitting, spattering sausages in Winnicott's account of cooking the recipe, and no impatient appetite. Where is his hand, his nose, his tongue, his salivating, the grease on his shirt? The pale, flaccid flop of a British-type sausage before it is cooked. Winnicott's account of the recipe removes sausages from the recipe for sausages, and also removes the cook from cookery. Winnicott sucks the life from the recipe and the recipe follower, her, consuming them as raw material for his theorizing about what it is to live creatively. But despite his vampirism, Winnicott's account is missing all the blood. Yours, mine, sorry, yours, his, mine, the sausages, the pigs, the farm laborers, the blood of those seated at the table or on the sofa, or not seated at all. Winnicott fears the mothering hand of the recipe on the sausage, on his sausage. He is a psych- he, a psychoanalyst, chooses the sausage to make his argument—the most phallic of all foodstuffs. And Mrs. Beaton, who is the mother of all recipe writers, in a rather small voice, he says, "Hands off my sausage, Mrs. Beaton." There you go. <laughs> mm. um.
0: Yeah. In the um, in the book, this is written in a different way to everything else as well, because yeah. it's your account at the time. Yeah. It also feels a bit like hexameter as well when you read it like <laughs> this. But I want to go to the the subtitle actually, which is an epic in the kitchen. Yeah. Um and there's this I guess tension between I guess the epic as this like masculine form with all that history behind mm-hmm. it and what you're trying and I guess the kitchen as a domestic and female space. Um how do you come across well how how did you come up with the title and epic for the kitchen? And why was it important for you to reframe the book as yeah. an epic?
1: Um well the subtitle is a late edition. Um but I bet as I re- the more I wrote the book, the more I became engrossed in what I was doing uh, and as a form of epic. And um I thought it I guess. Well, I guess in in sort of literary culture and and, and scholarly culture or whatever, um, um, the epic is often um, framed as a journey through which knowledge is um, discovered or found out, the the human subject um, undergoes development. And as I was writing about these many performances of of the recipe, I thought, well, yeah, cooking the same recipe a thousand times over 10 years is a form of epic in the sense that I've developed as a subject my understandings of of language and the world have have shifted through that time in a way, I suppose, akin to what I was reading about was happening um, in the Odyssey in my my academic studies. Um, And I found it quite helpful in a way to imagine what kind of Epic to imagine myself as someone on, on an epic, as part in, in the writing process, as a way of kind of giving value to labour that's often overlooked, not recorded, not written down. Um, even when I was trying to sort of imagine the history of, of the recipe that's at the heart of the book, which I so I came across the recipe in a newspaper article because it was a chef writing about what she cooks for someone for people when they come round, and she was oh yes, yeah, Marcella Hassan. And, um, and then Marcella Hazan has about five different versions of this recipe in her book, so she doesn't have one singular, singular version of this recipe either. And she also makes a reference to, hi- to the historic life of this recipe in a slightly, slightly mystical way about handcart-pulling laborers taking ingredients into Rome at some unspecified time in the past, um, but maybe pre-industrial some of them had horses but you know maybe there were also horse cart horse carts post-industrial period I don't know maybe I lost Rachel already who's here but <laughs> no pressure um anyway um anyway so this recipe appeared to have a sort of a deep and slightly unknown past and yet whilst I was sort of thinking about this and I was also then reflecting on having studied the odyssey and the fact that there are sort of libraries of literature and research devoted to the origins of the odyssey and the many iterations it's had over centuries, over several millennia, and scholar- scholar- scholarly volumes devoted to the translation of the odyssey and odyssey translation practices, schools of thought, etc. approaches, especially in light of the um, 2017, this fantastic 2017 translation of the odyssey into English by Emily Wilson, the first time it had been translated in full and published by a woman into English, even though there are dozens and dozens of Translations by men previously, because it was a kind of an elite sport doing Odyssey translation. Um, I was like, why are there not like you know, this one recipe could have a whole library of research devoted to the lifetimes it's inhabited, the many different, the all the knowledge that's accumulated through many different people cooking it over unknown centuries. And Never in a very long period of studying did I encounter a recipe text in an academic context. I know there are, in a sort of literary academic context, I'm not a historian. I know that, you know, historians, there is a historical study of recipes. But, and I, and also just even like when people like my my own mother's giving an account of when she, she cooks, she'll often minimize what she's done, minimize the level of, Thought that's gone into something or minimize the labor. I even realized, you know, if I was giving an account of myself or what I was doing with my life or my career or whatever, I would leave out cooking. You know, it's, 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 um, it's information, it's a sort of part of my knowledge that I didn't count as official knowledge in some way. And then I also read, um, I can't remember when it came out, I think it was 2017, the Natalia Ginsberg re- reissue by Daunt Books, The Little Virtues. Um, and there's a bit in there where she she's trying to write, um, she's got kids, uh, her partner is doing important political work and stuff, and she suddenly has this kind of revelation when she's making tomato sauce, where she says, um, you know, she realized she didn't need to try and write like men, I suppose, in a sort of a way of writing that was formally regarded as serious, philosophical, political, et cetera, she could write from the position of someone who makes tomato sauce, and that was a position that was valid and important, and that she knew things about tomato sauce, and and then that was part of what was valuable about her voice, and uh, so I've gone on a very sort of perambulatory uh, thing there, but um, I also I found that very exciting, because that text came, that that text, I think she wrote that in between the 50s and the 70s, I can't remember anyway, but um so yeah, I, I just wanted to make a space for these very small movements, these sort of daily practices that so many people have, um, and, and sort of understand them as valuable, and also understand them as participating in big philosophical questions, if if one wants them to, about all the questions people like, I don't know, Derrida or Theodor and, uh, Adorno and Horkheimer and other people are investigating, you know, what is language, what is the body, how do these things relate to each other, et cetera, like why we could be asking these questions through our culinary practices as well, you know. The, the, the sort of hard boundary between the kitchen and, and, and the intellectual space is was is, is one that I felt was sad. Certainly, maybe other people haven't experienced that, but that was my experience of, of education anyway.
0: You make it very porous in the yeah. I think across the book. Like you f- sort of find the space between them and like make room for those ambiguities. It's like really an epic about ambiguity in a sense. You s- sort of look at these yeah. binaries, whether it's sort of pleasure versus labour, yeah, sort of. Um, Nigella versus um, Martha, Rosler. Martha Rosler yeah um, yeah if it, if, why was it important for you to sort of knock those binaries down uh,
1: um, I
0: guess that's a big question but I like,
1: well I guess it just didn't feel real yeah you know, I just didn't feel representative of of life, and it felt very problematic, the exclusion of of labor of you know labor of care, labor of cooking well as one form of many of these forms, the exclusion of that from many discourses feels deeply problematic and politically problematic um, as well, both from a sort of the pleasure of literature and and, the- and thinking, but also in how we conceive of what's big ideas or whatever you know um,
3: yeah. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
0: Should we go for questions?
3: Yeah.
1: yeah. Hiya. Um, Hi. I am really interested in, did you know when you started cooking the recipe that you were going to do it that many times? I mean, did you, did you set out? Was it only at that moment you've talked about that you suddenly realised that it was a practice? Um, which moment that I talked about? Sorry, you were talking about the moment where you started writing a list of the times that you'd cooked it. Yeah. Um, I've been cu- I have been. I think I've been coming... Oh, oh, I've got a microphone already, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for it to come. Um, I've been coming at it through lots of different ways over a long period of time. So tr- to try and find a form to express it, because um, I didn't, like, know how to write a book when, when I started, which is probably a sort of stressful thing for my publisher here, whatever. But, um, you know, like, I hadn't written it before, and I was trying to bring, like, different disciplines together in a, in, in a, in a way that wasn't sort of difficult or clunky for the reader and for myself. Um, but so, like, for example, I used to be um, in a poetry group um, with some friends, and um, I wrote quite a few poems about Cooking, trying to understand cooking as a form of articulation and and the sort of uh, the expression of vegetables or and sometimes I inc- incorporated recipes into those poems and and read them out and I I repeatedly throwing myself at the question of, of trying to understand what what this knowledge was and what it was doing. Um, in 2015, sorry, my friend. Um, Jen Kaleha, who's a writer and translator, she was literary curator at the Austrian Cultural Forum, and she asked me for an exhibition to translate a short story um, into a recipe, uh, which I did, and then I cooked the recipe and gave it to people, and I made an installation about it. And that, So I guess, yeah, I, I had made lots of different oblique attempts at trying to kind of understand, if writing, what was a recipe, or how did I engage with it or what knowledge it had given me about all sorts of different things. Self, other, friendship, language, uh, embodiment, you know, all sorts of things. Um, And I guess, yeah, you said that moment in that recipe when I was trying to write the list. I just knew that every time I tried to think about what I knew about cooking to myself, I came back to this recipe over and over again. And it's a story, if someone asked me, what, a recipe, what recipe was a recipe that uh, I don't know that I liked or I thought about. I just re- returned to it in that account of myself. And then I hadn't, and it kind of pops up various points. I, I had a sort of, the first space I ever made my, for myself to do personal writing was just a, a blog called Dinner Document. I started in 2011. I was very depressed. So I was sort of almost dropping out of my PhD, very low, just feeling awful. And um, I just started documenting what I'd been cooking. And very slowly by making that space for myself, and it didn't feel too conspicuous as a form of writing. I'm just recording recipes. I'm not trying to write, you know, don't look at me sort of thing. Um, yeah, I gained confidence and, and started experimenting. Anyway, the, that tomato sauce, the tomatoes thing comes up quite a lot, or a few times in that period as well. But I don't, that's a, I've given you about three different responses, sorry. <laughs> I
0: guess it's important for that recipe to be just part of your life as well. Yeah. Like it cha- I guess maybe it changes as soon as you start self-consciously writing about it and like this is the recipe rather than just like a recipe that you cook yeah. for your friends.
1: Yeah, it, it, was, I guess it was part of the fabric of my life. So I suppose the epic was sort of revealed through the process of writing as such, if you know what I mean. I didn't understand it in that way in the, in the moment, but it was something I returned to over and over again, and was a really important part of lots of relationships. I mean, there's a lot of yous in the book. I, f- I was so fortunate to receive the, I'm on the Anne Boyan like, newsletter, and to receive this one where she had this paragraph about a you, because I wanted relationships are a very important part of the book, and I wanted it to be quite horizontal. I wanted to show the erotics and the intimacy of all relationships, not have a hierarchy. And I found the device of the U really, really helpful, and I was to, to sort of have that across the book. And so, I, you know, there were various more prominent U's than others, but I wanted to show uh, also how that relationship, how that recipe had changed through relationships as well.
4: Hello. Um, I have a question and it's about your writing about aesthetics and kind of personal aesthetics. And I know you worked with fashion and fashion writing earlier. And maybe when you're in Berlin, you know, you're very conscious of your appearance. But I wondered whether you would necessarily write about that now or if you were in the future to write a book because, um, I, you know, you're wearing a very lovely outfit. Thanks, it's all right. Um, but Obviously, you're very aesthetic today, and I know you but are you've generally. you've as a true grub. Yes. Well, I, I would never say that. But I wondered in future writing if you would, whether it was a kind of shell that aesthetic and that hair are changing and the kind right. of dissociation, yeah. you know, the okay, dissociation yeah. within that, hmm. whether that was about your youth or whether you would still consider writing about that. Or if it doesn't matter anymore, and you're grown up, and it's fine wherever you look, like oh
1: my God, I it's think a big big well, Your life is over. You're on the. Stuff. <laughs> you're not.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, nope. I don't mean that. You'll never. I'm going to cool pass again. this mic away from myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Clothes were really important to me at that point in my life. So, and they still are. But I was. I write about this in the book. I write about wearing an apron, and the sort of the erotics of apron wearing in early on in the book, and it's really a lot of that's to do with my exploration of embodiment and my gender. Um, I guess I read *Gender Trouble* by Judith Butler when I was sort of 19 or 20, and it was like a religious it was like a religious experience, like I was being released from some kind of tyranny, aesthetic. And embody tyranny of embodiment that I felt really sort of tortured by in my teens and early twenties or whatever. Anyway, and I found I write in, in a bit about the, the, some of the bit I just read. I talk about um, wanting to not feel essentially anything, and so this refusal, I, I suppose, of essentialized understandings of gender and what you know you're supposed to look like, or <laughs> Etc. Um, clothing was a really in that sort of breakthrough moment for me in in, in understanding and, and shifting my relationship with my gender. Um, fundamental part of that process of experimentation, play, fun. It's also fun, you know. A lot, um, but I guess some of those ideas I feel are less urgent for me to express through clothes all the time. It was also like inhabiting it and then changing my hair a lot and doing being extremely overt. Overt in some of those things was part of a really kind of foundational period for me in 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 becoming myself. I don't know whatever. but, but um, anyway. But I was also very conscious of being looked at and wanting to control that in a very kind of active way. <laughs> and now I never leave the house, and I have an allotment. <laughs> my seventy-year-old my seventy-year-old allotment neighbour has never been on the internet in his. You no, know, he's actually eighty. He calls it going on the line. And he's heard of Amazon, but he's never, he he retired because he didn't want to use computers. He was a piano teacher, anyway. So what I mean, I'm sort of less directly engaged with being seen at this point right now. Um, However, like, when I appear in front of people, like, occasionally, like, when I do teaching, uh, universities, or talks, or maybe, like, now, I dress as my... Book cover. Um, I, I feel the need to reserve the right to change my appearance as I want to, when I want to, and not, you know, I don't want people to get, feel too comfortable that they can sort of know something true, deeply, eternally true about me from looking at me in one frame or in one moment. So maybe Sophie, <laughs> maybe it'll come up again.
0: <laughs> Fiddle should just pivot to a
1: fashion blog, yeah, I think. There you go. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know if that's that's useful. Medium useful. <laughs> and what do you want? A guarantee of a fashion book? <laughs> I don't know. Sorry.
2: I've got one from yeah. the ether and then we'll come back to the yeah. room if that's okay. Um, this is from Anon. Um, great talk. Thank you both. Rebecca, you play with the boundaries of what a recipe is in a way I find fascinating. Are there any texts or books that are not recipes but feel to you like recipes, as in feel instructive or collaborative and inherently creative in the same way?
1: That's a really interesting question. I don't know if I have an immediate answer. Um, I feel like theory is, a, theory is a bit like that, or theory or philosophy or whatever you want to say can be a bit like that, because even just like the Judith Butler text I just mentioned, but you know, whatever, like people work in lots of different fields in the sense that it's a sort of instructional, it's an instructive text that you inhabit and change through your inhabitation of that text, and it changes through living and through embodiment. So maybe that could be seen as, as, um, as a sort of c- comparison with a recipe text. Uh, da- I don't know. Dancing? I'm like, what is a dancing text? But I don't know. But that sounds like a really great research question for, some, for someone else. Uh, no, I don't mean like that. I just mean like, I'm not being like, no. But, you know, I feel like, you know, we all have relationships with particular kinds of uh, texts and instructions of moments of revelation in our own lives. And I think, uh, you know, I, I'm just, I just love hearing other people talk about that for them, if you know what I mean. But um, I guess there's yeah. the
0: converse of that question as well, which is what recipe writing and food writing feels like there's this understanding of radical theory as well, even though it might not be theory. Theory. Oh, yeah. um, do you feel there's sort of antecedents to your sort of work on that?
1: Oh, God. I don't know. I mean, I feel like recipes are like just even just, I feel like we don't need to, I mean, I write, obviously I've written this book about recipes where I'm like comparing it, so I don't know. German critical theory or whatever, you know, in a light, and accessible way. But um, (laughs) what I just mean is, like, I don't think, like, I think recipes are already super, I think, like, recipe texts are already super radical in themselves. They are performance texts. They are asking you to experience things with your body in a novel way that change your body, maybe permanently, to encounter objects as if you've never approached them before. And I think that's kind of amazing and really cool and interesting. Like Recipes are already cool and interesting and amazing. You know, like, and, exci- and then, like so exciting. And, and even when I just cooked that, that Mrs. Beaton sausage recipe, it was like, I don't know, it was like insane. I felt so high and excited, and like like I wanted to have sex with everything. It's like, I don't know, <laughs> um, sorry. But um, um, I feel like we don't need to sort of make, to sort of try to make, uh, like so many recipes have had a profoundly transformative effect or my life and and, and, and yeah. So I, get, I feel like yeah, in a way we don't you know, recipes don't need to become more something else than yeah. they are. I think they are kind of crazy and amazing experiments and embodiment already.
0: There's also like this feeling that like theory sometimes has to be complicated or yeah. like absolutely like ununderstandable. Yeah. And actually I mean one th- good thing, great things about small fires is that you make theory so accessible and like so easy to read and, and that's to good understand. To hear. And, like yeah. simplifying it down and yeah, um.
1: Yeah, I had a very, I'm, I'm, I'm forever indebted to my very strict PhD supervisor who never allowed me to use um, a difficult term if I couldn't be bothered to explain it. And I wasn't allowed to, in a sort of flight of ego, just put something in a footnote. Um, she said, like, if you, if you can't be bothered to incorporate it in the body of a text, you're not allowed to use it. You can't just be like, you know, please let me just cite. This paragraph of someone and just do nothing with it. Just dump it in a footnote. She made me like really do the work. Don't don't expect that the reader has to do all the work. Like it's my, it's your literary text or it's your critical. You know, anyway. Yeah. There are no footnotes in
0: the book. I think. There's no footnotes. No. I think footnotes should only be for gossip and for <laughs> yeah, exactly. For, for beef as well. Beef. Yeah. yeah. Beef
1: notes. Um. There's, there's like there's, there's a list of citations at the back and. And a few other sort
0: of notes about... The citations alone, it's just like great to read. Oh, Um, thanks. Hello, um, thank you for the talk. And um, apologies, I haven't read your book yet. So if this question is addressed. addressed, um, um, Obviously, a lot of the time when we encounter recipes now, they obviously come with paratexts, you know, because of the, um, I guess, the material nature of books. They often have, you know, here's a story about how I encountered this recipe, uh, especially now when you have a lot of recipes online. They often have reams of text attached to them um, in a way that I know for some people has become a sort of butt of a joke, you know, the kind of long blog before you actually get to a recipe. I was wondering whether your experience writing about food has shaped how you engage with those paratexts. I, do you allow, Do you always read them and do you allow them to sort of shape how you then go on to engage with a recipe? Or are you the type of person who you know, scrolls past the sort of 12, 12 paragraphs about someone's grandma and then just gets to the, gets to the quantities?
1: Well, let's not speak in a derogatory way about someone's grandma. Um, but um it totally depends. Like uh I think part of that massive amount of text that you have on a lot of recipe websites is to help with SEO, search engine optimization, for those I mean I'm not particularly technologically advanced, but anyway. Um so like sometimes I'll read it and sometimes I won't. It depends on the literally depends on the situation, but um Often I'll really enjoy reading I like I could really enjoy the footnote about Saxon swineherds in the in the Mrs. Beaton sausage recipe. I, I felt like I learned something. Um, and it really depends, but I, you know, I think it's some you know, um, I think because recipes have a use value, there can be this slight attitude from the reader that the the recipe should be delivered to them in precisely the way that they want it. But obviously, if it's someone's recipe blog that they're doing, basically free labor, often or nigh on free labor, they can do whatever the fuck they want, you know. And maybe someone will have the time to to read it and appreciate it. Maybe they won't. But maybe it's an important part of their writing practice that they do that. And then maybe that will move, you know, lead to to, to writing a book or, or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, it depends on the context. But I, yeah, I, I often love, you know, it can be. It can be really. It can really help you feel like you're embodying the space of the recipe, or, or you know, if you're trying to inhabit what the f- what the meal is in some way, or, or maybe there's just like some kind of weird piece of information that's kind of entertaining. Um, in but, the uh,
0: in the book as well, you come to the same recipe twice through different authors with yeah. different paratexts yeah. as well, because you come it through Marcella Hazan, mm. but then you also come it through Ruth Rogers and but that's the, a really good point. And Rose yeah. Gray.
1: I do actually a- analyse the paratext in the book, I forgot that. <laughs> um, and, um, and actually, come to think of it, the Ruth Rogers paratext is, is why I made the recipe when I first encountered it, because m- I've never been to the, to the River Cafe and neither has my mum. Um, we don't live in London and it's, you know, it's, you know, it's like a faraway glamorous place. Uh, anyway, but, um, but my mum had some of their books and cooked some memorable meals when I was growing up, like special occasions from, from the books. And, but Ruth Rogers said that when people come round, they always expect her to cook super fancy meals, but she makes this tomato sauce recipe because it's the best that there is. It's the best recipe there is. And I think I was like 19 at the time, and, and I, she, this person who my mother revered, she said this is the best recipe there is, and it involved a tin of tomatoes and then garlic and a bit of oil. And so it was accessible to me. And so in that moment in my life, that was accessible to me. And so that's why. So the Paratex then was key in its accessibility to me in that moment and, and why it was alluring to me. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Get
0: that's your true. publishers to take you to the River Cafe, by the way. <laughs> After, like, maybe when we
1: sell out some print runs? Yeah. I think that
0: because they, they have Hot Pink there. So oh, right, it, it's okay. completely on theme.
1: Yeah, <laughs> who took you to the River Cafe, Jonathan? Mm, no one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, get someone else to pay for you, is like <laughs> my advice.
1: Sorry. Um, anyway. I, I think, did you have a question, Rebecca? Thank you. for Such a wonderful event. Um, I'm just quite interested... Um, that you are kind of writing out of, coming out of, going into this really exciting moment in food writing. And obviously, you know, Jonathan being here is very representative of that, everything that they've done with Vittles, um, you know, people like Ruby Tando, what, you know, there's much more than I can say. And I'll just be really interested to hear
2: why you think this has become such a kind of renewed moment for our kind of writing about an engagement with food? And obviously, I'm sure there's not one answer, but is there something kind of driving all of those writers and thinkers that you feel is also part of your practice? Do you feel part of that? And if so, kind of why?
1: Hmm. That was a multiple part question, but you know what I mean. I mean, I think the internet's a big part of it. You know, giving space to experimental publishing. You know, you can try things out. You know, I didn't feel like a legitimate writer. I never thought I would be a writer. I, I always thought I had nothing to say in my 20s. I was like, I'm never going to write a book or whatever. But, but because I had that space of, of, of having a blog to play around, over time, gradually, gradually gained confidence. It allowed, and to be a bit weird, you know, quite often very weird, um, or whatever. Yeah, the internet gave me space to experiment and try, try things out. And that, for me personally, that was instrumental in getting, and, and, and you know, vittles, I mean, you, Jonathan. I, mean, you, I, guess, yeah. I
0: guess like the internet gives more people access to like the levers of um, publishing. Um, it's
1: fewer barriers.
0: Yeah, um, I didn't have a blog before I started writing, but I, I did start fights on internet forums um, <laughs> about film first and then food. And that sort of gave me a sort of platform to build on. Um, that's a really good question. It's something yeah. I, I think about often. I don't quite know why. I mean, there's. I think there's always been um, a wealth of talent in British food writing, for like generationally. I think food writing is quite protean in that it often it often talks about whatever the, th- the the theme of the time is, mm. whether that's sort of going back to like MFK Fisher, and like a lot of the post-sport writers and this, this focus on like pleasure and survival and like the sort of joy of being alive yeah. almost. I think the themes of our time are being reflected in the new food writing, which is a growing far-right presence across the world. And so making the case for immigration and also immigrants and for people. Also climate change and labor and a much, I think like, especially in America, there's a, like a lot more focus on on production and, yeah. and, the, and the labor side and, and looking at how food intersects with climate and growing and and I guess veganism and vegetarianism are a huge part of that. But I think that is maybe one of the reasons why there's a more critical movement in food writing right now rather than just celebrating the lifestyle of it.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's moving beyond pure lifestyle, although pleasure is always part Mm. of it. Mm. And yeah, and also as Vittles does, you know, makes different forms of pleasure visible. And different engagements with food as a, as a pleasurable medium in in what is often a very difficult, <coughs> stressful life. Tangible and visible. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think I think like if if every Vittles newsletter was like doom, in like your inbox, which is already like doom, like at the best of times, um, I, I think it would be too much. I, I think there always has to be. i am just talking about Vittles now, but like an element yeah. of levity to it.
1: Yeah, um, and the reason that we want. To change things is so that more people can feel more pleasure more of the time, mm. and you know the, the systems that inhibit that are bad. <laughs> um, and so it's you know th- th- there's so much uh, you know especially out the you know black critical radical tradition writing about pleasure has often been a part of that. You know as I cite Audre Lorde in my book, but she writes about how central the pleasure of food was in in, in during a period of racial segregation in Harlem in the 30s and 40s. As a way of kind of looking, keeping joy at the centre of looking to the future um, in in daily practices, and um, I think that's still you know that's still po- important <laughs> in political movements to think about joy and pleasure. And uh, I think yeah, the, the writer Sophie Lewis, uh, I can't remember what she wrote or the particular wording of it, but it's about the sort of grand liberate, ho- like horny liberation of everyone, in a sort of post-revolutionary moment in her writing. But anyway, I can't remember that like the precision of it but but yeah, yeah. i think but, until
0: there's full liberation it will always be about pleasure you're yeah. always going to have to make the case for it yeah can we
2: end on that, <laughs> <laughs> end, on that? Thanks end on yeah more pleasure all the time horny liberation yeah. <laughs> i'm up for that um if you want more pleasure buy the book as well and get rebecca to sign it for you later um thank you all very much for coming thank you, thank thank you all out in the world for everyone who uh, uh, for joining us Um, Rebecca May Johnson, Jonathan Nunn. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
3: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes.
1: Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right.